Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're thrilled today to bring you the latest episode in our digital asset series, certainly one of those ideas that we like to cover at SALT that we think is changing the world uh, fundamentally. And, and we're excited to bring you a guest who we think provides uh, one of the best resources out there for people that are just learning about Bitcoin. And we love uh, when those types of people tune into these talks so they can uh, start to go down the rabbit hole, if you will, uh, that we started going down a few years ago that that uh, landed us on Bitcoin. So our guest today is Jan Pritzker. He's the co-founder and chief technology officer at Swan Bitcoin. He spent the last 20 years as an engineer and product and technology leader for early stage startups. In 2012, he was the co-founding CTO at Reverb.com, uh, which was acquired by Etsy for $275 million in fiat dollars in 2019. While he was exposed to Bitcoin in early uh, 2011, Jan didn't take it seriously until about 2016, when he began to research it on a daily basis. Uh, by 2018, he decided that it was the most important thing he could be working on and left Reverb to start consulting for Bitcoin-related companies prior to launching Swan together with Corey Clipston in 2019. Uh, Jan is the author of the book that I referenced earlier. It's called Inventing Bitcoin. And again, if you're new to the space, and even if you're not, and you still want to get a stronger technical understanding of how Bitcoin works there's no better book out there to start with than Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. Hosting today's talk is Brett Messing, uh, President and Chief Operating Officer at Skybridge Capital. Uh, before I turn it over to Brett to conduct most of the interview, he's sort of our resident uh, Bitcoin maximalist here at Skybridge, although we're all very enthusiastic about uh, our entrance into the space. I want to talk to you about Inventing Bitcoin for a second. So, you know, obviously we only have 45 minutes or so here, and you could probably go on for much longer than that, talking about all the intricacies of Bitcoin. But if someone was coming to you uh, for the first time saying, I know nothing about Bitcoin, could you explain it to me in a succinct way, uh, you know, relatively quickly, how would you do it sort of going through the outline of your book? Yeah, the book is very much focused on understanding Bitcoin as money, because this is the key understanding for me uh, that really flipped me. I, I started writing the book uh, and the subtitle of the book is, you know, the decentralized technology, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I really started thinking about Bitcoin as technology when I was writing the book, but I very quickly flipped my own thinking to, to Bitcoin as money. And so uh, succinctly, Bitcoin is a new form of money, and it's very similar to the digital money that we already know with digital dollars, with Apple Pay and Google Pay and PayPal and all of that, except for there's no intermediary. And that's a really key point because instead of those dollars and uh, flowing over these uh, systems, which are either government or corporate systems, now there's these uh, Bitcoins are flowing between peers. Peer-to-peer -peer cash is the subtitle of the Bitcoin white paper. Uh, so Bitcoin is a new type of money that kind of takes us into a different world where we don't need these centralized entities in the middle of every transaction where they can censor it, they can change the monetary policy on us and they can uh, make our money worthless. Uh, and, you know, I, I do come from a, a country that did that to the money, which is the former Soviet Union. And so um, Americans may not be always uh, kind of aware of what's going on in the rest of the world with how money works, because we live in a very different system here. We basically make the world's reserve currency and we have that privilege. 
but everybody else lives in a very different society and we are all going to be living in a digital society where all of our money will be digital. And so I always think about Bitcoin as a new form of money for a digital society native to that idea of internet money, but it's uh, open source, it's borderless, and it's not an end, under anybody's control, which is really important for us to have right. to continue to have a free society. And from a technical perspective, again, without going too deep into the science, you know, Bitcoin sort of solves the Byzantine generals problem, which you write about, and uh, Vijay Boyapati, who we're also having on Salt Talks, wrote about in his bullish case for Bitcoin. But how does that puzzle work? How do you remove the intermediary in a way that still maintains trust, verification, and everything you need to uh, to operate a financial system? Yeah, so Bitcoin is a system that anybody can join. That's really a, a different difference with the financial system. In order for you to transact, you need to have a bank in the middle or a company. And that company or bank is specially licensed by the government to do these kinds of things. With Bitcoin, in order to participate in the network, all you have to do is run some software on your computer and anybody can do that. So Bitcoin um, takes that ledger that your bank typically has, and that's, you know, in your bank, there's a database and there's some numbers in it, it says how much money does everybody have. And there's uh, guards around that database, right? There's either physical security guards, there's software intrusion systems, there's all this security around that, but essentially it's just a database with, with numbers in it. Bitcoin is very similar. It's just a database with numbers in it, but the difference is that everybody has a copy of this database and anybody can, can participate in that. Um, Bitcoin provides the same idea that your bank does with the security, but in Bitcoin, that security is provided through the usage of, of real world resources, which is energy. We actually expend electrical energy and very large quantities of it in order to secure Bitcoin uh, from attacks or somebody basically changing those numbers on us. And uh, that allows anybody in the world who wants to participate in the process that we call mining, which is really the production of Bitcoin and also the securing of Bitcoin transactions. It allows that process to be fully trustless, meaning we don't actually have to worry about who these people are that are doing the mining. We don't have to worry about whether they're following the rules because everybody basically uh, checks that the, the work that they're doing is correct. And there's a system of checks and balances there that keeps the whole system functioning, very similar to how our government has checks and balances, but I would argue even stronger. Well, we run a full node here at SkyBridge and, and the power of the Bitcoin network is how distributed it is. And and everybody who's involved in it is uh, obviously they have something invested in protecting the integrity of the network. So we're, we're proud to do our small part uh, in that process. But I'll turn it over to Brett to dive a little deeper uh, into Bitcoin intellectually with you for the rest of the conversation. Hey, Jan, yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, let me just, I want to hold up your book so everyone can see. So because anyone go. in Bitcoin should, should, should buy the book. Um, I think your journey is interesting and, and, and I think you can help us help other people, right? Which is, is a, there's a question we get asked often. So you found Bitcoin in 2011. I'm assuming it was 10 bucks or less. You re-engage with it in 2016. It's probably 500-ish. Maybe you buy some then. I will do speak. And then you build, start building a business when it's 10,000, right? It's kind of, it's up 20X. So I think you know, might know where I'm going with this. We get asked a lot, am I too late? Right. It feels late. You know, it's hard enough to buy Bitcoin the first time for a new buyer because, you know, you, you're remembering 2017 and Jimmy Fallon making fun of it and, and your neighbor's kid asking you about it. And it's something you couldn't take serious. And now you realize you might have to, but it's still so hard. And then when you couple that with being the guy who top ticks it, um, I think it, it just makes it difficult. Um, so how did you think about that? And then how do you think 
you know, others who are, who are addressing it here today at 50,000 should think about it. Yeah. So I think it's a very common story that people have multiple touch points with Bitcoin. Uh, as you said, my first touch point was in 2011 and I heard about it on Slashdot, which was a, you know, a website for nerds. I think it still exists, not, not very popular anymore, but essentially it had tech news and it said, Hey, there's this open source payment system people are building. I said, that's interesting. Maybe I'll buy some, bought some of 30 bucks. Uh, why should it go down to $2 and just exited the market? I just thought, okay, I've been, I've been taken for a fool. I mean, I didn't have very much money in it. I had like a thousand dollars in it. Right. Um, but just the feeling that you got taken for a fool is so strong and you just sell the bottom, you get out of it and you never look at it again. Right. And that's exactly what happened to me. And in 2011, I did that. Uh, 2013, there was a, a change in the, in the market, right? Uh, the price was actually a thousand dollars when I first, when I kind of revisited in 2013. So it's got gone up tremendously from my first experience at 30. Right. And what made me think of it differently is now there was an app called Coinbase and it was pretty shiny. It looked nice. looked like somebody had put the time into to do it right. And it was a very different world from in 2011 when you were buying on a very shady exchange called Mt. Gox. It was a really poor user interface. You had to wire money to very questionable places. And it was basically the change in user experience that made me think, you know what, maybe there's something here, right? Uh, and then in 2016, again, you had this massive shift in uh, the way that people were thinking about Bitcoin. You had more and more companies coming into it. You had more building. And for me as an engineer and as a startup person, I started seeing an ecosystem emerge. And uh, watching an ecosystem emerge around something, you start to think of it differently. You don't think of it as this, oh, it's just this thing that's worth you know, X amount of dollars. No, it's an actually, it's a system and there's infrastructure being built. And that makes you wake up and say, okay, well, why are people building infrastructure on this? There must be something more to it. And I think as the price grows and as the adoption grows, what we're actually creating here is essentially an unstoppable monster. So price is a very good measure of adoption. The reason the price is going up is because there's more demand. It's very simple because Bitcoin supply is very constrained. So the demand goes up, the price goes up. So as price goes up, more money is invested in infrastructure, more money is invested in mining. Uh, for example, in 2011 or 2013, miners were just people with a machine in their garage. Uh, now, miners are public companies with millions of dollars at stake, sometimes hundreds of millions, uh, billion dollar market caps. So it's a dramatic shift in how uh, the network has evolved. And that means that we're at a different place, right? And this year, we know there's a major development with public companies now entering into the space, Tesla or MicroStrategy or a dozen other companies that are now buying large quantities of Bitcoin at these prices. So now you have to ask yourself, why are they doing that? And how many more companies behind them will follow? And we know there's very, very large demand for this. So for me, um, it's actually de being de-risked as it goes further, right? All of these kind of early narratives around Bitcoin is for criminals or Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme is, are being disproven every day as more and more people and more and more companies and smart people uh, enter the space. You know, folks like Jack Dorsey and Peter Thiel don't just do things for fun. They're smart people and they're doing things because they have a reason. So if you really pay attention to these folks and you also recognize that the ability to enter into Bitcoin isn't even there for some of them, right? If you're a hundred billion dollar asset manager, it's very difficult for you to, to buy a significant stake in Bitcoin just because of the liquidity. Uh, and that liquidity is growing every day. So for me, it's not at all about, or am I too late? It's that we're actually too early. Um, if you look at the adoption of Bitcoin, I mean, how many percent of the world has any Bitcoin? It's certainly a single digits. It's probably under 5%, almost certainly under 2% with any significant allocation. So if you look at that, it's kind of like internet 1995 where you could have said, hey, the internet sucks, it's over. It's, you know, it's been two decades, it's, it's not going anywhere. And, and people have said that. Uh, There's a Newsweek article by Cliff Stoll in 1995 that totally dismissed the internet and said, my, my local mall is doing more business than the, you know, in a day than the internet does in a month. 
But that was at a time when internet penetration worldwide was half a percent and it was 5% in America. And I would argue we are at the internet moment of 1995 right now in Bitcoin, where that's exactly the penetration we have uh, in the world and we can see it growing exponentially. And you can either dismiss it and say, I missed the boat, or you can realize that we're standing on the floor of the exponential curve that's just coming up. Um, thank you. That's, that, you know, that, that's interesting. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm trying to think where to go to it. it <laughs> It does seem to me that, right, the, the defining feature of Bitcoin, right, is is the, the restricted supply, right, and that you know it's predictable and it and it doesn't respond to demand, right. But but as Bitcoin goes up, right, each coin is worth so much more. So, you know, I was I was thinking about Square. So Square issued earnings yesterday. There was a lot of focus on the fact that they put 170 million of their balance sheet into Bitcoin, which is exciting. But if you looked at their the amount of Bitcoin they sold to their customers, you know, quarter over quarter, it sort of flattened. It went from like 1.6 billion to 1.7 billion. And if you look at where the price is today, right, relative to where it was in the third quarter, it's up about 4x, right? So their contribution, right, to the supply demand, right, balance, imbalance, right, is less significant, right, materially so. So doesn't Bitcoin have to become an institutional asset to maintain this price? Well, I think there's interest from institutions certainly this year. And I think one of the ways you can explain uh, the retail cool off, if you will, of Bitcoin is probably because people are looking at it and saying, hey, this thing just went up, you know, 10x from March, 4x in the last couple of months. Um, why would I buy the top? Everybody's thinking they're buying the top, right? And when you're a retail investor, which is, I mean, I'm happy that they're thinking that way. Maybe they're being a little smarter than in 2017 when everybody did buy the top. Uh, and then the tap only lasted a few hours. But this this time, it seems a little bit different. I mean, these prices are sticking around for weeks, uh, now months. I mean, we've been grinding from 30,000 to 50,000. Um, I do think there's a difference in how institutions are thinking about it. And that's both from my own experience at Swan, because we do onboard, uh, I mean, we, we onboard smaller businesses, but they're certainly you know, small and medium-sized businesses that are not going to sell tomorrow. They're here for 10 years, 50 years. Some of them are looking at it as a, something that they're going to just keep in the family and pass on for generations. So it's a very different mindset. So I'm not too worried that retail people are buying uh, less on Square. Actually, they shouldn't be buying on Square because there's ridiculous withdrawal limits. Uh, so don't do that. Um, but but you know, I, I think there is a, a certain amount of cool off there. I wouldn't use Square as the judge of how Bitcoin is being sold at all. Uh, we know, for example, there's $25 billion of interest at NYDIG right now from institutions. I, again, I believe that's because it's just very, very early. It's not going to be 25 billion. It's going to be 250 billion next year, potentially. So we're looking at the beginning of that cycle. And so, you know, yes, institutions are going to be adopting it, but you also have to look at what's going on all over the world. And we are in the, such a, an American bubble here. And I just have to like hammer this home for people who have never been outside the U.S. or haven't looked at financial systems outside the U.S. Right now in Argentina, you cannot buy more than $200, 200 American dollars per month. Okay, that's Argentina, a, a reasonably developed, you know, first world country, if you will, right? That's having some issues with their currency. That problem is all over the world. Okay, Nigeria, Libya, Turkey, Iran, in all of those countries, people are buying Bitcoin. Okay, and it's going to be much smaller amounts than institutions, obviously, but in mass, as billions of people enter into Bitcoin and hundreds or thousands of institutions do, you're going to see an appreciation in the price. You're going to see an appreciation in adoption. It's hard to see how that doesn't happen. I want to push back on that just a little bit, and I don't, at the risk of sounding parochial. I mean, right, I, I, I think you're, you bring a, a unique perspective, and, and clearly in the early years, 
you know, Bitcoin appealed to people in places outside the U.S., right? They got it immediately because they lived through currency collapses. But if you think about what happened in the fall, right, it was some combination of Michael Saylor, Square, that grayscale vacuuming up, right, and, and PayPal, right, for, you know, U.S. actors. It just feels like the U.S. financial system is so critical. Like when, when people say, well, if the U.S., bans Bitcoin, I'll just go somewhere else and buy Bitcoin. Well, that's fine, but Bitcoin is going to be worth 75% less than it was the day before the U.S. banned it because BlackRock's not going to hold it. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you can just go through. So is it the U.S. important it, 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 just because of, you know, its role in financial markets? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Absolutely. I think the U.S. is important and it's kind of like, you just have to think about it proportionally. Where's the wealth, right? The wealth is here. So the wealth and the knowledge, frankly, is here. So we have the access to the to Bitcoin and we should be buying it, right? The US is absolutely in the position to be a world leader here. Um, whether they voluntarily give this position up by banning it is a question. I don't think it's gonna happen because frankly, I mean, the government is run by corporations and the corporations are now buying Bitcoin. So I don't really see that happening. We also have you know senators that are now Bitcoin friendly on the banking committee. So I don't see that ban happening. It's also a big free speech problem. Um, but even if it did, it would be the America basically as if America said, oh, you know what, we'll, we're just going to ban gold. We're not going to allow our central bank to hold the gold. And like, you know, you're pricing, you're, you're taking yourself out of this system, which is clearly the future of money. And yes, it may cause a dip in the price. Um, but another country that is not, you know, as scrupulous as the U.S. is going to come in and do that. So um, somebody's going to take the reins on this thing. Uh, but yes, it, I, I do think the U.S. is systemically important in the sense of adoption. Yes, they're driving the adoption right now. Uh, but just like with the Internet, right, with 1995, 5% was in the U.S., half a percent worldwide. The U.S. was the inter- leader in the Internet. And it's good that they continue that leadership and continue that encouraging that uh, innovation instead of saying, oh, you know, we're going to ban open networks and we're going to force everybody to register uh, to, to run a website. Uh, they could have done that, too. Right. And they didn't. So I think the U.S. is as pretty smart as far as the regulation is concerned. I think they're going to wake up to this idea that this is innovation. Um, this unlocks unlimited financial potential, potential, and it makes us a world leader um, when it comes down to uh, Bitcoin replacing the reserve currency. If that ever happens, we better have our bets hedged, right? You don't want to be at a zero allocation um, if Bitcoin starts to be used for world trade. Does it does it bother you that we have sort of you know people at the head of the sort of you know, regulatory system here in Europe, sort of peeing on Bitcoin at every opportunity, for lack of a better word. You know, I'm talking about obviously Janet Yellen and and Christine Lagarde. It doesn't bother me. I mean, they're pretty. They're frankly, they're kind of aging themselves out. Um, I mean, if you look at the adoption of Bitcoin, uh, it is very stratified by age. I would argue that probably folks like in the boomer generation, for, at least for us, they're the majority of the money is coming from them. Uh, but the numbers are coming from the millennials. Uh, people, you know, Gen X. So I do think there's a certain amount of old guard that's just going to get turned over. Um, and also that they're, I mean, Bitcoin threatens their entire job, right? What would be the job uh, of Janet Yellen? Or it would look very different, right? Than, than uh, on a Bitcoin standard. So I think um, it is a big threatening thing. It's kind of like, you know, the, the horse salesman saying cars are noisy and dirty. Um, and it's just going to be a generational shift as people will think of it differently. So I'm not too worried about them, you know, saying these things, they're going to have to say them until they, until they are forced not to say them. Is it, you know, does it, do you worry about the, the, the bands around the globe, right? Be, between China and 
and India, some African countries. We're probably approaching half the world population, right, where Bitcoin has been banned. I don't know that that's true. I mean, I, there's definitely been some gray area stuff going on. I don't know if it's half the world where it's banned. I, I'm not sure about that number. Uh, maybe you have better data than I do, but... Wasn't um, well, you have 40%? I'm not, so I was just rounding, you know, for... for well, but, but, if it's, but hold on a second. If it's banned in China, then why is all of the Bitcoin mining in China, right? <laughs> it's not banned in China. And people are, are getting Bitcoin, uh, you know, out of China as well. So it's very hard to stop Bitcoin and... Another thing to think about is every time it has been banned in any sort sort of way, uh, whether it be um, restrictions on trade or whatever, it causes the local price of Bitcoin to skyrocket. And what does that do? It creates black markets. And what do black markets do? They topple governments. Historically, that's what they do. Uh, if the currency uh, of your of your local um, government is weak and the black market currency is strong, that black market currency starts to gain usage, and then you know, game over. Yeah, I'm only asking these things because I've been accused of being ragingly bullish. So I'm trying to <laughs> moderate a little bit here. I appreciate that. I'm also raging bull, so it's but, very difficult. But, you know, I'm, 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 <laughs> to quote a friend, Raul Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm irresponsibly bullish. We've been told we right. have to be balanced in these conversations. Yes, balanced. So, you know, so, yes. So, so that's what I'm striving for. You know, we'll have an off, you know, we'll have a cheerleading <laughs> session after. Um, can we talk about, particularly, you know, given your background and the way I think you probably think about things, um, be interested in what kind of valuation methodology you use or you think people should use, right? Because if you just, at a very high level, right, capital's competing with each other, right? Stocks are competing with bonds and right now gold is, you know, so, you know, capital's looking for the best pace to allocate it. And I think most traditional investors will look for, you know, how do they know if it's cheap or if it's expensive? How do you think people should think about Bitcoin in that context? Yeah, it's very tricky because I think traditional investors always look at like, what are the cash flows? You know, what am I getting? What am I actually buying here? Right. You're not buying a cash flow yielding asset with Bitcoin. Um, you're buying uh, an adoption curve of the future of money, which is a very different thing. And I think a lot of people are still thinking of Bitcoin as a hedge or as an asset in their portfolio with a high sharp ratio or you name it. Um, I really think that's a flawed way of thinking about it. What you really have to ask yourself is what percentage of the world's value would be stored on a network that allowed that value to move freely, uh, borderlessly, frictionlessly, as opposed to, you know, sending money from America to Venezuela and getting, you know, horrible fake exchange rates in the middle and getting censorship and getting that money stolen or getting it lost in the, you know, bank to bank settlement system versus I can send, you know, a billion dollars in a minute to any country in the world instantly. Um, that's a pretty different experience of money. And so the question is, what percentage of the world's wealth would be interested in that kind of uh, functionality, right? Um, and you can look at things like the stock market, real estate, gold, all of these things, right? They have a certain, and I'm not an economist, so this is just a me parroting things that I've learned, but these things have a certain amount of moneyness, right? Um, the reason people buy the stocks when they have you know, cheap money, right? What you're seeing Sailor do, he's taking a loan for 0% and he's buying Bitcoin, right? They can buy Bitcoin, they can buy real estate, they can buy stocks, they can buy things that are highly liquid, easy to sell, uh, and they can park their value in these things. And so the question is, what percentage of those assets are, you know, what percentage of my house is is worth X because I'm living in it versus because I'm going to be able to resell it later. Like, for example, I live in a, in a neighborhood that is very um, constrained. There's only a hundred houses in this neighborhood and you can't build inside of it. So that's, this is it. So my house retains its value really, really well, right? Because I know that anytime I want to, I can leave it, resell it, instant demand. 
other places, right, where there's unlimited land, they don't hold value so well. Uh, so you see people buying, you know, a luxury condo in New York and for $10 million and holding it and not, nobody's living there just because it's a store of value. So when you're talking about those kinds of functions, how much better is Bitcoin at that than, than those other things? And I would argue uh, almost infinitely because a house, you know, it has its use value and has its kind of moneyness premium. And then stocks, you know, like you have Tesla, it has its future cash flows, but it also has its premium just because, you know, we think it, it might be easy to sell somebody else, a greater fool, if you will. Um, Bitcoin is better at those things because it's all pure monetary premium. It's purely money. It's literally cash. So if you believe that, then the way you have to value it is what percentage of the world will want to store their wealth in cash if that cash didn't lose value. And I think that's a very high percentage. I don't know what that number is, but it's certainly tens to hundreds of trillions quite easily. Um, I agree. <laughs> um, how do you think about Bitcoin volatility, right? We've had, you know, we had a 25 plus percent pullback in January. We had a 22 or 23 percent pullback this week. Um, and, how, you know, I guess personally and at Swan, you know, um, how do you, you know, what are you, you know, what are you telling clients? You know, were you, was your phone ringing a lot this week? Uh, frankly, no, which is very interesting. So, uh, we've only ever had one person sell and that person, um, just had to take some money off the table for, you know, personal reasons. Um, we don't actually have a sell button right now on our website. Uh, we encourage everybody to hold their Bitcoin for a very long time. Uh, we open up IRAs and trusts, uh, where people are passing on the Bitcoin to their children. Uh, the companies that are, we're onboarding are all looking at it at a 10 plus year horizon. Most of them beyond that. Uh, again, these are a lot of these are family businesses where they're thinking about keeping You're the, the Bitcoin. Opposite of Robin Hood, right? So literally, yeah. I mean, completely <laughs> the opposite. And I think this is very interesting. This shift to to Bitcoin as a store of value, as an inheritance asset, as a long term play, is relatively new. I don't think that's the case in 2017. And that was, you know, people just getting retail FOMO, trying to trade uh, other crypto assets, and like basically just getting wrecked buying the top. It's a very different uh, experience right now. People are really thinking about it for the long term. And with that in mind, the volatility is really not a problem, right? Um, yes, it goes down by 20 or 30%, but then it goes up by 10x. So I would, I would ask like, where's, where's the problem? If you're really in it for the long term, there shouldn't be any issues with the volatility. Um, and you can always size your investment to your comfort level. So I think that's, you know, is what it is. Dollar cost averaging is something we, we highly promote. Obviously it's one, it's kind of how we launched, uh, but dollar cost averaging really, it's very, it's a very hard to lose strategy on Bitcoin. If you look at it in any three year time frame, you're pretty much up. So it's very, you know, as long as you're willing to stick around three to five years, basically enough to live past the having cycle, um, you should be okay. And again, looking at it at a 10 year horizon, there's, there's no issue about volatility at all. Uh, you can't have Bitcoin without volatility. It's being adopted by people, you know, in bursts. So you're going to have that volatility as it gets overvalued and then it kind of comes down a little bit. Um, yeah. Although as, as, as Anthony says, everyone's a long-term investor till they have short-term losses. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, I really believe that Bitcoin is changing people's, um, like their emotional ability. You know, before I used to worry about my stock portfolio, my S&P going down with two or three points in a day, it'd be like, oh my God, S&P is dipping. I'm losing a lot of money. Now I look at a Bitcoin dip 20, 30%. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money here. I don't, I don't blink. I don't think about it. And I know that that's the case for a lot of folks that get into Bitcoin because the volatility actually just trains you out of your system to even worry about it. Just because it is so volatile, you have to eventually start ignoring it or you're just not going to be able to sleep. <laughs> it's, 
So here's my theory on why that's the case. I think it's true. <laughs> and probably you're, you're probably too young for this. Disney used to have these e-ticket rides, you know, you go to Disney World or, mm-hmm. right, and the rides were, were based on, on, you know, how intense they were. You know, Bitcoin is like a Z, right, uh, ticket <laughs> ride. So when yeah. you get on the ride, you, you know what you're doing. You know what I mean? You're going in with open eyes. It's not like someone's buying GE stock and well, all of a sudden it got volatile, right? So I think yeah. there's probably, yeah, I don't know, you know. I think that's a good point. But I also think though that like this has changed in the last couple of years because in 2017, when people were getting into it, I don't think they knew that what kind of ride they were getting on. They just saw the number going up and they wanted to buy it. And then all of a sudden it started crashing like crazy. Um, but now I think with more history behind us and a little bit of a rear view mirror, it's easier to see that Bitcoin does have these really big quote unquote bubbles that then pop, but they pop, you know, at a two or three X above their previous uh, top. And, you know, it's not an issue in the long term. Okay. So that's a good, that's a good, that's a, uh, a good segue. Do you think the cycles continue this way? Uh, it's very hard to say. I mean, Bitcoin has a very interesting release schedule where it's tapering off and we're having less and less Bitcoin released over time. So, you know, for the folks that don't know, Bitcoin is actually going to continue to distribute all the way in the year 2140 or a little bit uh, ahead of that. So we have a hundred years ahead of us of Bitcoin mining, but it's a smaller and smaller and smaller amounts. And so I think um, we're going to see different behavior potentially as the amount of Bitcoin on the market shrinks and people start to really understand the scarcity of it. Um, and perhaps that's what we're seeing now with this year, because we're one of the differences this year versus 2017 is that we're actually seeing a net outflow uh, or a large outflow. I'm not sure if it's a net outflow, but a large outflow of coins from exchanges. So in other words, it's not people buying Bitcoin and then trying to trade it. It's them taking it off of the exchange and trying to store it for the long term, which may change the nature of the market because people aren't necessarily trading it all the time. I mean, sure, you have guys, you know, doing 100x leverage on, on Bitfinex, but most of the uh, institutional interest is not in that. It's really just to take it and hold it for a long time. So it may change the nature of the market as more of that uh, float is pulled off. We'll, we'll have to see. Right. You know, my experience with sort of what I would call great trades is they never last. And so the great trade is, well, I buy Bitcoin at the halving, right, when the supply is reduced in half, and I hold it 14 to 18 months, and then I sell it. Maybe I even short it there. And I repeat this, and it becomes like the the Bitcoin Olympics, right? Every four years, I'm going to do this. And I've spoken to too many people who have that mindset. And if you go on Twitter, people are tracking where Mm -hmm. we are after the halving. And it's my personal view that one of two things is going to happen. Either the bull market is going to end way earlier than people think, or it's just going to keep marching forward. And so you're going to have these people who get off, regret, right? As they watch it go off. And given that I'm wearing a Bitcoin hat, I'll let you guess which of those two outcomes <laughs> I think is likely. But, but I, I, I would say the, the idea that this, this predictable trend continues, I, I would put it at I agree. Know, low percentage. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's going to be as predictable. And I know so many people have gotten wrecked trying to short tops, thinking that, that it is the top of Bitcoin where it has no real top. And it's, again, I would bring it back to the analogy of, of the internet where you know, in 1995, you saw it like, you know, I had a dip in, in adoption or in the, around 1999 or 2000, you know, there was the dot-com bubble burst. And all of a sudden there was articles about people quitting their internet accounts or something like that. And if you would short the internet at that point, you would have been just destroyed, right? Absolutely wrecked. Like all your models are destroyed. It's the same thing with Bitcoin. If the truth here is that we're on an adoption curve and not a, this is not a financial asset that goes up and down. No, it's an asset that just hasn't yet been fully adopted. So it's just like shorting TCP IP or the internet. I mean, you would be an absolute fool to do that. 
uh, or you know Amazon for that matter. If you try to you know short it in long term, you would be just destroyed. So it's the same problem here. We're on a, in a we're in a place where the final state has not yet been achieved and may not be achieved for decades or longer. So you can try to trade those you know ups and downs. Um, good luck. But again, it's like trading you know trying to short the internet. It's it's just not smart. So so Jan, what do you worry about? Um, <laughs> if, we're, if we're wrong, okay, we're wrong. You and I are having a beer, it's 10 years from now. And, you know, this seems like a ridiculous video that we made, me wearing a Bitcoin hat, right? And you being bullish, having built a business. And we're just totally wrong. Why are we wrong? Like what? Uh, I think there's some things we don't know about, you know, maybe there's a fatal flaw discovered in the technology or in the encryption that we just never thought about. Um, you know, maybe somehow like the government just like decides to just perpetually spend, you know, billions of dollars attacking the network to never let it continue forward and literally just decides to just continue to print money and to do so only for the case of stopping the Bitcoin network uh, to move forward. I mean, these things could happen. They seem kind of outrageous, um, but those those could be probably the things that would make it really um, at least unusable in some medium term. But I mean, imagine the, the U.S. government just like taking over the Bitcoin network and amassing all of the world's mining uh, capacity and like building factories just to outpace the rest of the world, just to make the thing stop. It seems ridiculous. But Elon's could, taking it, us to Mars. Yeah. We don't even have to worry <laughs> about uh, regulation here on Earth. Exactly. There you go. We're, and we're going to need a free money on Mars. We're going to need a money that is not uh, controlled by the U.S. government. So, <laughs> I, you know, I guess it's... Um... What I always say is I think regulatory is always risk number one, right? I mean, that's, um, and then it's the unknowns, right? We're talking on Zoom, you know, we're, we, we're doing this salt talks, right? Because of the pandemic, right? Which is, an, you know, what Donald Rumsfeld said, the unknown unknowns, right? Which mm -hmm. I, that, that's, you know, um, but it's far different. I spent most of my career trading energy where, you know, you worry about OPEC, you worry about, you know, war breaking out or peace breaking out or, you know, I mean, regulation, there's just, you know, Bitcoin, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, to your point, I don't worry about it that much. Um, but yeah. I, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm, you go, please. I was going to say that um, I, I really like to look at Bitcoin's incentive structure and its underlying mechanics to think about like what could probably go wrong. And, you know, what's interesting about Bitcoin is it has all this self-balancing behavior, right? So, okay, the US decides to ban it. Like we're gonna, we're gonna take ourselves out of the mining industry. We're going to tell Peter Thiel to go home. We're gonna tell everybody to stop mining, stop buying. Great. Then what? Some other country, there's a, there's a vacuum. There's a power vacuum. This is a thing that is worth a lot of money, right? Okay, so it drops by 75%. It's still worth a lot and it starts to gain traction in other places, right? Okay, that country bans it. Somebody else steps in. I mean, there's no real game theoretic scenario here where, where it just dies, right? You would have to kill it everywhere and kind of all at once. And it's a very difficult thing to do because it has so many different heads. And again, those heads, if you think about it, the places that would more likely ban it, I don't worry about the US banning it. The places that more likely ban it and where you've seen the bans are the places that actually have problems with their currency, right? Those are the same places that ban you from buying dollars. Those are the places that are really worried and what happens in those places is that Bitcoin goes up in value and the people who end up holding it are able to pay bribes in the Bitcoin. They're able to buy off government officials in the Bitcoin. The local currency is worthless. And so you have the self-pressuring cycle. So over time, it kind of self-regulates itself. It's really difficult for, for it to be killed in any one place. And any attempt to kill it that fails only makes it stronger because it's just demonstrated Bitcoin's whole value proposition, which is it's money that can't be killed by governments. So as soon as we see those failures, 
value goes up, price goes up, right? Adoption goes up, black markets go up, everything goes up. So it's very difficult for that reason. If you look at how the, structurally how it works and structurally what the incentives are for everybody uh, in the system, it's very difficult to kill it for those reasons. Yeah, it, it seems to me that that as it gets broader ownership and you, you know, both from the populace and, you know, corporate, it becomes unkillable, right? So maybe you could have killed it five years ago. You easily could have killed it 10 years ago. Maybe you can still kill it. But if it continues on on the rate it's at, I, I, I think it, you know, it becomes like the Terminator. You can't stop it. Um, I do worry a little bit right now. Um, you know, I, I, my history is I, I was a Democratic uh, deputy mayor in Los Angeles. The progressive movement isn't cool with Bitcoin right now. And, and I think that's important just given, you know, uh, what's going on both in the United States politically and globally, that it, it's not seen as a libertarian right-wing idea. Um, as, as you know, there was an unhelpful mm -hmm. piece of legislation introduced in Congress in the fall that didn't go anywhere. But I, I think there's some educating to do um, and just to making sure it doesn't be, you know, everything gets politicized. We don't want Bitcoin to become a partisan issue. Yeah, I would agree there. And look, my friends, I mean, I'm, I probably have a circle of friends that's like 95% liberal. Um, so I know this better than anybody. And, you know, I, I don't know if I would consider myself a liberal or in the center or, or where, but um, I actually think that Bitcoin is very well aligned with liberal values in terms of like helping the world and, you know, fixing problems for other people and for society and all that, because it's just a matter of having them see the problem from a different perspective and that what is, you know, for example, liberals are very concerned about wealth inequality. Okay. Well, what's the problem? Should we just like steal money from billionaires and give it to poor people? Or is the actual problem that we're exacerbating wealth inequality because our money's unfair, right? And if you start to think of it that way and start to sell the solutions, well, you know, Bitcoin is a much fairer money than we've ever had because nobody can manipulate it. Nobody can print more of it. Nobody can uh, issue handouts to somebody. You know, if you're a bank, you can get a bailout from the government. You're not going to get a Bitcoin bailout. Um, it's just not going to work that way because nobody can print it. Uh, you know, is there an energy problem? Are there, are we worried about not enough renewables? Well, guess what? Bitcoin helps balance green energy grids. It's a solution for many problems that liberals care about. And again, because of my circle of friends, I'm constantly talking about this stuff. I really do think that liberals will wake up to these things um, at some point when they realize what the truth is. But unfortunately, a lot of people have their heads up, you know, a certain uh, bodily area that, you know, yeah. and they just don't think of outside of their own bubbles. Um, and so they're conditioned to think that the only solution to everything is government. And that's just, you know, I think the more you read about the stuff and think about it, it's just not. I, I, I think the Bitcoin is bad for the energy is going to be something we hear a lot about this year. I don't think mm -hmm. it was a coincidence that Janet Yellen mentioned it this past week. You know, where does that go? That goes to, well, should you, should you tax right? Bitcoin in some way, right? A, a form of a Bitcoin carbon tax, if you will. Um, I, I've always worried more about the government taxing Bitcoin in an unfriendly way than a ban. A ban is, it just seems very severe. Um, you can achieve a lot of what you might want to gain with tax policy. Um, so yeah, but I, th I also think that we're going to start to see a shift around seeing Bitcoin as a national security issue and not having the government own any Bitcoin being a problem. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying this is going to happen this year, but I do think in the next four years is going to start being viewed that way, especially once we start seeing bigger countries settle trades between themselves as with Bitcoin. Uh, we're already seeing some of that with Iran and Venezuela and Turkey. So it's possible that um, as that happens, the government starts to change their tune a little bit. But yeah, I mean, yes, they could tax Bitcoin mining. And then what? Then we're just going to shift that entire industry to China. 
Is that what we want? Do we want to give our entire Bitcoin mining industry to China? Um, that's not the narrative that's been played in America. Like China's now, you know, an enemy number one, and we have to be better than them in every way. If we're going to voluntarily give up an entire industry, potentially an industry that's, you know, important to national security, um, I think we're going to do it wrong if we do that. All right, so I have one last question for you, then I, I'll let John take us home. So, you know, one of the things that I have found so exciting about the, the stretch of institutional adoption is if you think about institutions as verticals, right? You've had a cor corporations buying it. You've had endowments buying it. You've had a few pension funds. You've had a few um, um, mutual funds. You know, almost every category has been filled, which is better than I think if we had lots and lots of corporate adoption, but nothing else in those various verticals, right? So to me, that's super encouraging. So my question to you is, what's gonna, who's going to be the first country? <laughs> I, I really do think it's going to be one of the disadvantaged countries. One of the countries has been pushed out of the dollar system. Um, Iran, we have reports from Iran that they're forcing their miners to sell Bitcoin to the central bank. We have those reports already. Um, I don't know if they're true. I'm not on the ground, but I'm assuming that the people who are know this. Um, we know that Ukraine is uh, about to mine energy, mine Bitcoin in their nuclear facilities. Um, this is being discussed. We know that Venezuela has these problems. It's going to be the countries that we don't like. It's going to be the countries that we're going to claim are terrorists and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I feel really strongly that America has really abused its role in the world um, to say something like, oh, Iran is just like out of the dollar system because we don't like their leaders. We're punishing an entire country worth of people. They're fine people. They're normal people. They're people trying to live their lives. We're punishing them for their leaders. Um, and those countries, they need to survive. And when there's necessity, right? Necessity is the mother of invention. So it's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see the quote unquote access of evil countries, the Iran's and the Venezuela's of the world are going to be the first to adopt Bitcoin. Our government's going to react very negatively to it. We're going to try to do more censorship and more uh, sanctions and all this. And we're going to find that it's totally ineffective and that they're able to trade with each other just fine. And then we're going to see, look at the situation and say, well, guess what we just did? We created a monster and we have to, we, we either play the game or we're out. So you're sort of predicting Silk Road 2. I am predicting Silk Road 2 on the national level. Yeah, that's what it is. It's going to be that. It's going to be Bitcoin is not for criminals. It's for terrorists and it's for terrorist countries. And it's for North Korea and, and Iran and stuff like that. It, it, um, it's going to present a marketing problem for Bitcoin. You know what I mean, right? On some level. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I hadn't thought about this. It's this axis of evil going first. I had always thought like it'll be an African country or Caribbean country or... It could be Nigeria. I mean, Nigeria has a ton of Bitcoin adoption as well. Um, internally, we know that like something like 30% of Nigerians have claimed that they've used Bitcoin. Uh, and I know for people on the ground that it's very, very high adoption. People are building businesses down there. Um, but I really do think because of the necessity to settle trades is where, where it comes down to, right? It's a necessity to settle trades when you can't use dollars uh, or you can't use any currency of your neighbors because you don't trust them. Um, it becomes a problem. And I think that problem gets solved. But look, the Silk Road was a marketing problem for Bitcoin too, right? Uh, you know, for people who don't know, it was 2013, it was a site for selling drugs and, and assassinations and God knows what else. It was a huge problem for Bitcoin, but we made it past that. And now all of a sudden we have Tesla buying it. So it's the same thing here where even if there's negative publicity in the first place, then it's the mind shift around, well, it's, yes, it's for criminals because money is for everybody. Just like the internet's also for criminals and so are shoes and computers. Yes, these things are for criminals because they're for everybody. So once we get past that idea of it's for criminals, now it's all of a sudden, what are the actual benefits for that? 
So um, I'm going to let John speak. I just want one comment. I'm going to lose some Bitcoin cred. Um, I actually read on vacation this book about Silk Road, um, Nick Hilton's book. And it was fascinating and fun, but you won't see me wearing a free Ross t-shirt. Um, I'm not saying you should stay in jail forever. I, I think the, the sentence was wrong, but you can spend a little time there. I think he's only been there five years, you know. Um, anyway, so, I'm, you know, my Q rating just went down a little bit in the Ouch. community. Um, you know, I'll, Non-viol- yeah. Nonviolent criminals should not be jailed. Come on. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> uh, yes, <I'm> true. <laughs> We can have a discussion about whether there was That's not a separate happened. discussion. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I agree with that statement. I just don't know that it's that characterization, but you know, yes, hundred yeah. percent agree with that. Um, John, you want to finish us off? Yeah. And, and my Q rating is going to go down in Switzerland and, and in my home country, because you talk about criminal enterprise. I mean, most criminal enterprises take place with physical U S dollar notes mm-hmm. and uh, run through the traditional banking system. So when you see a yeah. banks attacking, Bitcoin, because, you know, a very small percentage of transactions are used for illicit activity. It rings a little bit hollow if you really understand how uh, money laundering and criminal enterprise works. Yeah. And I mean, they pay billions of dollars of fines and nobody talks about it as if it's a problem. It's just, the you know, the status quo. We're just going to pay a couple billion, no problem. You know, yeah, we did some bad stuff. But with, yeah. with Bitcoin, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, one yeah. thing happened and we have to talk about it now. It's just because yeah, it's new. Good. It's the same thing when the Internet came out. It was the same stuff was ta- said about the Internet. It's going to be for criminals. There's all this uh, nefarious activity online. There's child pornography and there's all this other stuff. Look at all these problems. But the Internet is a huge net benefit for humanity. I think pretty much everybody at this point would agree on that. Um, yes, it's used for illicit activity, just like anything else in life is, Right. People are going to do illicit activity if you make things illegal. <laughs> so I want to talk about the energy question. You, you referenced it very briefly. You know, it's a common refrain from Bitcoin skeptics or Bitcoin haters that it uses this massive amount of energy. If we scale Bitcoin, you know, it's, it shows a basic lack of understanding about how Bitcoin works, but they talk about what if we scale the volume of transactions and the price, you know, it, it's going to consume more energy than we consume on the entire planet. What do people misunderstand about energy usage and and how can we continue to develop energy solutions? You talked about Ukraine using nuclear power to uh, to mine Bitcoin, but how can we sort of rebuild our energy grid in a way uh, that's friendlier for all purposes, but including uh, within the context of Bitcoin? Yeah, I think one thing just to address is how Bitcoin actually does scale or how how the energy usage is, what, what it's proportional to. It's very different mentally from what you might think of. It's not a per transaction usage cost, which a lot of people get wrong and, and then projected outwards to say, Bitcoin is going to eat the world's energy. And this was written in 2017. There was an article that said, by 2020, Bitcoin will use all the energy output of the world. Um, well, guess what? It didn't do that, right? Uh, and the price went up quite a lot. So uh, what actually happens in Bitcoin is that Bitcoin uses energy proportional to you know the, the cost, the, the value of the, of the coin. So if it's $50,000 per Bitcoin, then it costs almost $50,000 worth of energy to produce that Bitcoin. It's just proportional because as the price goes up, more miners come in to want to try to mine it. And Bitcoin actually self-adjusts to always be exactly the same amount of difficulty to mine. So you know if more miners come in, it becomes more difficult so that we can only produce a certain amount of Bitcoin per time period. So Bitcoin's energy use does not scale with more transactions. Uh, it only really scales with price. But even then, um, as the price goes up, and like I said, you know, if every if you, you, uh, Ukraine starts mining in a nuclear power plant and all of a sudden they're able to mine more than anybody else, then only other nuclear power plants will be able to participate in mining. That's what it actually comes, comes down to is that everybody has to get leveled up in their ability. And this is why I really believe that over time, 
Bitcoin mining will be very strongly co-located with energy companies. You have to be at the source of production. You have to be right by that windmill or by that hydro station or wherever you're producing your Bitcoin. Um, because uh, outside of that, you're going to have higher energy costs. And whenever you have higher energy costs, you now become uncompetitive in the market. Uh, Bitcoin has an effect to push out anybody who's not on the cheapest, absolutely cheapest Bitcoin uh, energy production costs. So, uh, so that's number one is Bitcoin's energy usage, usage is not specific to transactions. We can have a million transactions. And by the way, a Bitcoin transaction is not a person-to-person -person payment. This is a really another thing people don't understand. A Bitcoin transaction could be settling thousands of payments. It could be a batch of millions of payments that came from a second layer, like a Lightning Network, or even from you using your Visa credit card and then paying the bill in Bitcoin, right? That could be millions of transactions batched into one Bitcoin transaction. So a Bitcoin transaction is more like a container ship that you send over the ocean containing all this cargo. And you don't talk about it as like, you know, it didn't cost you a million dollars to ship a piece of plastic from China is because all this plastic was inside of that container. So Bitcoin is a, is a very much a settlement network. It's more like Fedwire. Um, there's a great article by Nick Carter that came out in Coindesk, if, if you guys want to read more about that, um, where he makes that analogy and, and really drives it home. So Bitcoin doesn't scale with it. With, uh, its energy usage does not scale with transactions. In fact, that's not a problem at all. Uh, but the second thing to flip the energy narrative on its head is that a lot of these green uh, power plants, like Texas, they have wind energy. Um, in order for them to be economical, they have to be built of a certain size, and they can't be built of a certain size if there's not that demand for that energy. So what Bitcoin does is it comes in and it's the buyer of last resort for any energy that's unused. So rather than wasting energy, Bitcoin is actually reclaiming waste energy. It's reclaiming energy that would otherwise not be used by anybody, and it's creating a price floor for that power plant to be operational, to be profitable, and to invest in continuous innovation. So if we want green energy, we need Bitcoin at every green power plant, creating that load so they can actually continue to expand, innovate, and develop better solutions. And Bitcoin is very unique in that way because it can be turned on and off. Um, and if you want to learn more about that, there's an article, I think it's in Forbes, if you Google about ERCOT and how they're using uh, Bitcoin with the company called Layer One, they're acting as a dynamic load on that a system where they can be turned on and off in order to balance the grid, which is really, really cool. Um, and it really is the key to more renewable de development. All right, we just have a couple minutes left. So I'm going to do some rapid fire questions where I'll be looking for rapid fire answers. So Tether, uh, Bitfinex and Tether just settled with the New York Attorney General for 18 and a half million bucks. No admission of wrongdoing, uh, no insinuation that they've been using Tether to manipulate and, and boost the price of Bitcoin. Is that issue settled now with Tether? Is all the fear, uncertainty, and doubt related to Tether dead? Or is still that an open issue about whether there's other issues uh, within Tether? It's probably going to be a perennial issue just because people love to come up with something to criticize. Um, frankly, we here at Swan, I mean, we sell millions of dollars of Bitcoin and we've never touched Tether. I think if you talk to anybody who actually operates an exchange, I could tell you how much of that is Tether, you know, is affecting prices. Uh, people don't look at OTC markets where Tether may not be used. I mean, there's, uh, there's a host of issues. This is all already been debunked. And it, honestly, I don't think it's going away. People are going to keep going at it, but it doesn't really matter because you can see the price of Bitcoin is just fine. All right. So next question. We recently had the launch of the first North American Bitcoin ETF in Canada. Purpose Investments was the first. Uh, there was another that came soon after, but Purpose did $400 million of volume in its first two days of trading, despite uh, the fact that the ETF market in Canada is a small fraction. I think it's around 200 plus billion versus 5 trillion in the U.S., what does that tell you about uh, what it's going to look like when a U.S. ETF comes out? And what's your prediction for the timeline for a U.S. ETF? 
I think it has to happen very soon. And the reason for that is that you have all these proxy stocks that people are buying because they want a Bitcoin exposure. They're buying MicroStrategy, they're buying Tesla, these stocks are going vertical. It's frankly irresponsible of the SEC not to approve an ETF because what they're doing is they're just creating bubbles and stocks that talk about Bitcoin in any way. Um, so I think it's going to happen very soon. And now we have to do it to save face because you can't let Canada win. Come on, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah, this was fantastic. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Brett, you have any final words for Jan before we let him go? No, just thank you, Jan. And again, you know, we're really you know grateful that you wrote the book. And, you know, if you uh, uh, if you write another book, we'll be at the front of the line. So um, awesome. And we will continue buying and distributing them because it's, you know, as I said, it, it's uh, it's the great it's a great the best one on one book I've read. I appreciate that so much. Thank you guys for taking the time and for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Yep. And again, that's Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. It's a relatively quick read. You can get it straight straight on Amazon, uh, but it's a great place to start in terms of understanding the technology. And Vijay Boyapati, as we mentioned, the bullish case for Bitcoin, you put those two resources together, you're uh, on the path to becoming a, a Bitcoin maximalist the way Brett and the way Jan is. But uh, thank you everybody for tuning into today's Salt Talk. We love educating people about digital assets. It's something that We've been on a journey uh, over the last several years to learn about it and get comfortable with the custody and the security and other issues that people bring up uh, when they when they express skepticism about Bitcoin. Um, but just a reminder, we have all these episodes of Salt Talks focusing on digital assets on our website, salt.org backslash talks. You can go there and view them all on demand. And you can view them all on our YouTube channel as well, which is called Salt Tube. We're on Twitter, which is where we're most active on social media at Salt Conference. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and we're trying to grow our presence there. So we'd appreciate a follow. And please spread the word uh, about Salt Talks and about these digital asset Salt Talks. Again, even if people aren't going to be buying Bitcoin, uh, we think it's important to educate yourself about it uh, so you can sort of uh, get over some of these common criticisms, related, whether it be related to energy or, or other items that people frequently bring up. But on behalf of the entire Salt team and Brett, uh, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.